are again. Can you believe it? We just transported from D.C., had church basically, and now we're here in Orlando again. Uh, I did miss home. I love this place. I like our new building. Does anybody like it? It's amazing. We're so blessed, honestly, to be here. Uh, let's fill the seats. Why not, right? Many people need to hear the word uh, these days, especially now when there's so much chaos happening in our world. And so today will be more of a pastoral word. It's uh, basically titled, The Comfort of the Lord and in the Midst of Discouragement. And so we, uh, today is going to be more of a, uh, a gentle word from the shepherd and uh, much needed after many different passages that just sort of get you right where it hurts. Um, that's what the truth does. It, it, cha- it transforms us, it changes us, it challenges us, uh, but it also today it comforts us. And that's what uh, the word of God wants to uh, communicate this morning. So it's basically kind of like a follow-up from D.C. I know not everyone was there in D.C., but you can also go online and listen to the two messages that we, we had there in Acts 17. It was really encouraging. I know I was personally encouraged. Uh, I, a lot of times when I preach, I, I myself have an encounter with God uh, just because uh, the word is being preached ultimately to me as well. And so uh, turn with me to Acts 18. So we're going to look at the first 17 verses and the comfort of the Lord in the midst of discouragement. And so in verse 1, it says, After these things, Paul had left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, Corinth was a very powerful city. It was actually more powerful than Athens uh, at that time. And during, during this time in the first century, it was a political and a commercial uh, city. It was also... Um, uh, it's, it's in the uh, peninsula, uh, a peninsula of Greece. And basically, before they had the, the canal was built, they had to take their, it was a 200-mile journey around it, which was not very convenient for many and very dangerous. And so what they had to do is they had to take their boats, and uh, it was about a, f- a four-mile stretch. They put the boats on wheels, and they would drag it across the peninsula to the other side, uh, until they, um, in 1830, or 1893, uh, they had finally built a, a canal that would go right through there. The city was extremely evil. If you remember reading First and Second Corinthians, uh, you realize there was a lot going on. There was incestuous relationships. There was uh, the misuse of gifts. There was manipulation, uh, a, a lot of discord and division. There was a lot happening there. But um, the term... Corinthianize was basically, uh, cons- it was considered, they would call people that, that committed fornication, that would committed sexual adultery. And so they had a, basically a 1,500 foot temple uh, committed to uh, basically sex gods. Uh, and, and prostitutes would go or priestesses would go to the temple every so often and they would do their, uh, perform their, uh, disgusting acts, uh, if you will. And so it was a very, uh, uh, there's no city really compared to that. I mean, people might say Vegas or Los Angeles or Hollywood or something like that, but there really isn't a city necessarily compared to it. It was pretty bad. And Paul found himself there. Uh, but before he got to Corinth, if you guys remember, he actually went through hell and back, didn't he? I mean, he was kicked out of virtually every city, Thessalonica, Berea, he was kicked out of, uh, he wasn't really necessarily kicked out of Athens, but he wasn't so successful. He had lost a lot of his friends. He was very much alone. And then he walked the 53-mile journey from Athens to Corinth. Um, it was quite a journey. And you can imagine how Paul felt. He was alone, discouraged. He might have even been uh, despairing and realized, is this even worth it? And maybe you find yourself there this morning, just is this even worth it? Uh, compare, I mean, whether you find yourself sick or whether you find yourself, uh, you know, just discouraged because people didn't respond well to the gospel from D.C. or uh, you're tired, you're weary from the mission. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis said, if you want a religion to make you feel comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Right? 
This is not for the faint of heart. <laughs> this is hard work. And I think a lot of us are feeling that uh, this morning and just saying, man, we are, in one sense, we're really just encouraged that we brought 180 people to D.C. That's really encouraging. But at the same time, also feeling that weariness, like, is this worth it? And of course, the enemy always hits you hard when you're weak, right? So it's not just a physical uh, feeling of weariness and tiredness and maybe discouragement, but then he also hits you in your mind, right? Uh, that's exactly what the enemy wants to do. John 10.10 10 says that he is a, an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But the Lord wants to give the abundant life. And I'm telling you, we can find the abundant life even in the midst of weariness and even in the midst of discouragement. And so Paul, he says this in 1 Corinthians 2.3. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That's what he felt like when he was in Corinth. Going on mission is not always full of uh, happiness and, and, and everything going well, just because it's almost like as if we think God owes us something because we're sacrificing, oh, maybe God will make it easier for us because then, you know, he'd want us obviously to do this more often. And so we, maybe he will work with us in that way. We kind of have that mindset sometimes. And then it says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 7, which he wrote Thessal Thessalonians a little bit after he had left the city and he wrote this while he was in Corinth. He says, for this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, we are comforted about you through your faith. In other words, true joy comes from something deeper than our circumstances. It comes from a place of saying like, hey, uh, I, I'm in this because you've called me to this. You've called me to be missional. You've called me to do church with a family. It is not easy. It has definitely cost us everything. And when we do it out of a place of obedience, there's joy, but he doesn't necessarily take away the circumstances, right? But there's hope this morning in a couple of ways. And I'll get to that in a second. But it says that in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, this is what he found. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Do you know the Father that way? He is definitely the, the commander in chief, and he will call people to the mission field. But he's also the comforting shepherd. Right? Amen? I'm going to need a little bit more interaction this morning. It's <laughs> But he also says this in 2 Corinthians 7, 6. This is all around this time in Corinth. So you might be thinking, well, it doesn't really say anything about discouragement, but you got to look at the context. In other words, the biblical characters were human. They were just like us in every way. They weren't superhuman by any means. It says, but God, well, I love that. Anytime you see but God, you want to pay attention to what is before and then after, it says, but God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. That's going to come very, this is going to be very important as we move along here and uh, in, in how God brings us comfort practically because he does. And throughout scripture, we see that ministers of the Lord get discouraged. In Numbers 11, 11 through 15, it says this. So, so Moses says to the Lord, why have you been so hard on your servant? Have you ever felt like that? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all the people on me? Was it not I who conceived all these people? Was it I who brought them forth that you shall say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to your fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? It was in that context and they were complaining after they had left Egypt miraculously. For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. <laughs> I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you are going to deal with me, please kill me at once. This is Moses. If I found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. And then Joshua, a little later on, he says, alas, O Lord, why you ever bring these people over to the Jordan? So it's not just crossing the Red Sea into uh, into the promised land, but also the crossing the Jordan as well. And uh, Joshua's taking up Moses's mantle, so to speak. Why are you crossing the river 
only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. It sounds similar, doesn't it? When after a mission, after we've worked really hard, it just seems like, God, can't you just bring a blessing on us? Can it just be easy? It's not like that. That's not necessarily how it works. And so we can find a lot of comfort in the scriptures, but it says here in 1 Kings 19, 4, it says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the juniper tree and he requested for himself, this is Elijah, that he might die and said, it is enough now, Lord, take my life for I am better, I am not better than my father's. These are men of God. You might be thinking, oh, I'm not like that. Really? And they, uh, commit, they, they had committed great exploits for the Lord. I mean, these guys were the real deal. I mean, and they felt that way. Isaiah 38, 1 to 3. If those days, in the, I'm sorry, in those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill, and Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. How'd you like that prophetic word? Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, which I'm hoping all of us would pray at that point, remember now, O Lord, I beseech you how I have walked before you in truth with, the whole, and with my whole heart and have done good in your sight. And then Hezekiah wept bitterly. And then, of course, you know the rest of the story. He got 15 years more to his life. We don't have time to go into it, but did he use it well? Hmm. It's debatable. <laughs> Job 3, 1 to 3 says, Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night which said, A boy is conceived. Like I said, C.S. Lewis said, If you want a religion to make you comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. And I, you know, I found myself again, just even up from the front, just worshiping God and just saying, I die to myself again. Right? I mean, we just, our life is not our own. Whether we die today, we die. Or whether he allows us to live 40 more years, he allows us to live 40 years. But our life is not our own. We are a slave to him. And so therefore, when things come our way, we're not necessarily frustrated because we're not building our own utopia and asking God to help us with it. We die to ourselves, it's his life. And we've given our lives to him fully. Spurgeon said this, I think you'll be encouraged. I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person here. And I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart, and to seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love and dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. And then he goes on to say this, this depression comes over me whenever the Lord is preparing a larger blessing for my ministry. There is hope even in this. And maybe you find yourself maybe not there right now. You're like, ah, everything's great. Wonderful, but keep these in your journal and go back to them later, because you will need it at some point. The cloud is black before it breaks, and overshadows before it yields its torrent of mercy. Depression has now become to me as a prophet in rough clothing, kind of like a John the Baptist heralding, heralding the nearer coming of my Lord's richer blessing. And far better men have found it, the scouring of the vessel has fitted it for the master's use. Immersion in suffering has preceded the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Fasting gives an appetite for the banquet. The Lord is revealed in the backside of the desert while his servant keepeth the sheep and waits in solitary awe. The wilderness is the way of Canaan or the promised land. The low valley leads to the towering mountain, right? Defeat prepares for victory. And before any great achievement, some measure of discouragement or depression is very usual. So know that 
even on these mountaintops of like a DC trip where we're all together and it's powerful and it's fun, but it's also exhausting. Some of us might have the mission trip blues. And I, I know I've had them. We call them the mission trip blues over the years because it just happens when we're all together. It's so fun. It's exciting. We're not working. We're not uh, as far as our job, day job. And then also we're not going to school. So it's, we're all together. We're staying up late. We're enjoying it. It's extremely exhausting. The Antioch plague is inevitable. Uh, everybody gets sick. It just happens. The blues, the sickness, it all comes, but it's so worth it. And God is preparing us for something greater. Always. And that's the exciting thing about this. We don't know what he's going to prepare for. I was about to announce where we're going next, but I'll probably wait till next week. <laughs> if you know the word probably is, is uh, always gives a little bit of, but I'm not going to do that. Although the administration said, yes, you can do that, but I'm not going to. Let's just give it another week to breathe. But we're always thinking ahead. What is next? You know why we do that? Because God's thinking that way. He is the ultimate visionary of this church. He is always leading us to that next valley and mountaintop. And it all comes together. This is what a pastor says. I like this. It says, and I think in terms of all of us are missionaries. All of us are pastors in that sense. We're all in ministry. Our enemy knows that when he strikes the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And our church leaders, even as the Lord himself, are Satan's special targets. The more faithful and fruitful a pastor is, or even you guys as ministers, the more his people need to pray for the strength and protection. Do not let your guard down. He is more subject to the devil's schemes to make him discouraged or self-satisfied Hopeless or superficially optimistic, cowardly or overconfident. Satan uses every situation, favorable or unfavorable, successful or unsuccessful, to try to weaken, distract, discredit God's gifted men and women in their work of equipping the saints to do the work of service. Isn't that true? We've got to be on our guard. Plus, you have to even up the prayer even more so for our leaders. It is so important and the reason why I say that is because we want to have a culture of that. That, in other words, we cannot just waltz our way into the mission field and think that we're just going to come out unwounded. We have to go in knowing that it is actually dangerous territory to go in an enemy camp. It will cost us something. And understand that we have to, like Jethro said to Moses one time, right? He came in, he said, look, you're just getting, there's long lines to, to for Moses to deal with all the discrepancies in the camp. And what did Jethro say? Fifties, hundreds, thousands, or tens, fifties. I mean, smaller groups. In other words, raise up leaders, godly men and women that would raise up the, uh, uh, you know, and, and pastor the flock. That is important, but understand that the leaders are the first in line to get hit. They always are. And I think it's important, it's not, hopefully it doesn't sound self-serving, but to pray for the leadership, especially those who teach and preach. Because that is where the first line of enemy uh, attack will go because he's not stupid. In other words, you attack the president. If, if something happened to the president today, that would be the biggest news. If something just happened to some civilian, it, wouldn't be, it would be a big deal. No, we don't want anybody to get hit, but it's a big deal to strike the shepherd, the sheep scatter. And we need to up prayer because if we want to continue to do what we're doing, we've got to do that. Now, I want to basically take the rest of this time to share with you guys four different principles and how God blesses us or encourages us or comforts us in the midst of Discouragement. Number one is friends. He blesses us with friends. Now listen, all these start with the letter F, which is trying to be somewhat fancy and convenient at the same time. So so you guys remember that? Friends, fruit, fellowship, and fend. Fended. I I couldn't I couldn't uh, think of a better word for that one. Sorry. (laughs) But protection. (laughs) I tried. Give me credit, okay? Okay, here we go. All right. Number one. Family, that God does 
bless us when we're discouraged with marvelous comrades, doesn't he? It says here that it's Paul in, in chapter 18, in verse 2, it says, And Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he came to them, and because he was of the same trade. Now, their trade was uh, making cannolis <laughs> from Italy, right? And so they were cast out of Italy. They had to figure out what to do, and so they brought cannolis to the Middle East which was wonderful. No, to Greece. I'm just kidding. It wasn't, it doesn't work. It sounded funny to me in my head, but it wasn't really that funny. I don't know why. <laughs> and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they were working for by trade, they were both tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. God provided companions. Isn't it great to go on mission together? This is not a lone ranger uh, religion. That's not what, we are never made for. In fact, I thought Robert picked a great song to begin with. uh, And we're made to worship in our father's house with the family of God. We're all meant to come to the table. We're all meant to find comfort together, but also at the same time, we're all meant to go on mission together and fight for one another. The church is an amazing, amazing thing. What a gift. It says here in Romans 16, three and four, what he thought about Priscilla and Aquila. He said, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, Don't we risk our own necks for each other? To whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches of the Gentiles. You know, I think it's important to know that we're not just talking about some superficial, shallow friendships here. That these guys had something in common. And I love this, that, you know, one of our prayers for Nicole and I, we'd pray is that, yes, we'd all live in like the three to five mile radius. I know that sounds silly when we first started, but it actually works. I mean, somebody, one of the families, just another family just bought a house in Oviedo. It is costly to live here. It, it, and it wasn't always like that, right? I mean, it, when we first got here, I mean, there was nothing across Mitchell Hammock. You go from the, the corner of Elf and Mitchell Hammock, there was nothing. There's an old Papa John's rundown and they eventually demolished that building where Chick-fil-A is. There was nothing there, nothing there as you go down Mitchell Hammock that way, nothing on Redbug. That, this was a, uh, basically a cow town. I mean, and this is when we moved in, I don't know, nine years ago or so. It's amazing. And some of you guys were here longer uh, in Oviedo. But I love this city and it really truly has grown around us. And one of the things that I, I prayed is that, you know, I don't think people, you know, a lot of young people, they love to move downtown Orlando, it'd be great, live next to Lake Eola, all that. I mean, it all sounds amazing until you come home from a long day's work and they realize, oh, I got, I got, a, I got life group and I got to drive 45 minutes in traffic back to Oviedo and then back. I doubt you'll, I, that'll probably get old after a while. And God has called us to live in community with each other. And this is our family. This is the local church. And what an amazing thing that is. It's worth fighting for. It's worth being together because you need each other. When, when you're sick, no one wants to drive 45 minutes to drop off soup and drive 45 minutes back. People just want to be right next to each other. There is a level of convenience there. And, so it, and, and really how they did church in Philippi, I don't think they, they didn't go, I mean, they, they didn't go from Athens to Corinth. They didn't travel. There's no way someone walked 53 miles to life group. They didn't do that. They stayed there. And there's something powerful about that. There's always going to be the naysayers. Well, you, don't you care about Castleberry? I love Castleberry. Nothing wrong with Castleberry. Live there, but go to church there and do something about it. But here's, what God, here's where God's called us, or at least called me, I know for sure. And so we want to unpack the kingdom here. And it works. It's wonderful to leave your house to see people every time you go out somewhere. It's awesome. I love that. Not only that, uh, as they did church here, but they also worked together. They were tent makers 
they shared uh, three common things. One, they both got kicked out of places. One got kicked out, a couple got kicked out of Rome. Like I said, there was a cannoli shortage. They had to move. And number two, there was a, <laughs> number two, Paul got kicked out of almost every city he went into. Especially it was pretty rough in Galatia, right? If you remember, he got stoned almost to death. They, they happened to work together. They were tent makers. And then third, they wanted to serve the Lord together. In other words, there was a purpose. It's not just trying to create this nice little... Have you ever seen the Truman Show? That was kind of a weird movie, wasn't it? Um, watched it years ago. I was probably, what, 90s maybe or 2000, early 2000s? It was kind of a weird movie, but... That, if, we, if, if people are just wanting a nice, actually, in fact, where is that at? That is in Florida, isn't it? It's in Destin, Florida, I think, just outside. It's like a, just this fake music, like a celebration. You know, everyone drives those little golf cart looking vehicles and everything looks the same. It's, it's kind of bizarre, actually. Uh, that's not what God's after. He wants us to be diverse and have freedom and to, uh, to express ourselves in many different ways, how he's created us. But there's a commonality, and that commonality is the kingdom, is friendships that revolve around Christ and his purposes. Otherwise, it just doesn't work, and we'll get to that in a second. I love what Augustine says. He says, what is a friend? A friend is a single soul dwelling in two bodies. He was one of the greatest thinkers in our time, well, last 2,000 years. But also 2 Corinthians 6, if you're not convinced yet about being, uh, having friends with unbelievers, this doesn't work. It says here, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? In fact, he's talking about even working together on a common project. Or what fellowship is light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Nothing. We could be friends, so to speak, with the unsaved. In fact, Jesus was called a friend of sinners. Really what he was saying is he was called a friend of sinners, meaning that, and people get this confused all the time, but he was, when he sat with the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they were repentant. In other words, even the, it, there, was a condition, there was a condition, the friendship was conditional in that there was a, it wasn't just Jesus just waltzing around town, just hanging out with all these people who were not, uh, who wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, we'll get to in a second, that what happens when people continually resist you? Now, what's wrong with it that if you invite your neighbors over and then you find out later they're resistant to the gospel. Do you keep inviting them over? You have to really walk with the Holy Spirit on that one. Because you might, you might, you know, roll up your sleeve and be like, look at us. Oh, man, we're flexing our arm just thinking, oh, look, we're just being like Jesus. Reality is you're not. Because when the woman who is a prostitute and looked at Jesus realized, I'm undone, I'm, and she's weeping at the feet of Jesus and wiping the perfume and her tears with her hair and wiping Jesus, cleaning Jesus' feet and the people around him, the Pharisees, who he had dinner with, but probably never had dinner with again, were those people who were giving her a hard time. But that is important, though, that our friends, our believers, our closest friends, how God comforts us he comforts us with like-minded people, and we need those people, and they're right here. Thomas Brooks says this. He's a Puritan. He says, let those be thy choicest companions who have made Christ their chief companion. In other words, I want to find friends that are walking deep in the Lord and, and, and ahead of me, and, and, or at least if not ahead of me, they're, they're, we're challenging each other and we're comforting each other and we're walking together in, in, in commonality because we both consider Jesus everything and his purpose is everything. There's nothing like that. Spurgeon said this, that some Christians try to go to heaven alone in solitude, 
But believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone. Those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect, that they love to get together, sheep go in flocks, and so do God's people. So do God's people. We're meant to be together. There's nothing more attractive. You know, when I left D.C., before, or before I left, uh, I was at the state a day later. Um, I got sick on, pretty bad on Sunday. I'm still a little bit like that under the weather. But the, when, I was, um, when I was talking to the people at the hotel, when I was having breakfast with Miss Peggy, a lot of you guys didn't get a chance to meet her, but some of you did. Uh, she's like, oh, come here and give Miss Peggy a, a, one last hug. And I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, um, she is so sweet. But she's like, by far, you guys are the best group I've ever had. And then the, the Jennifer at the front, who is the manager, she just said, this was the first group we've had since uh, COVID happened. And you guys were incredible. I was so encouraged. It was so lively, so joyful, so much fun. Um, Really, you, you leaked the presence of God and the, the, the culture of the kingdom everywhere you went. It was amazing. And even Jennifer, uh, an, another Jennifer at, um, at North Star, where we did our meetings and the college, where the college students stayed, she was just blown away by our culture and the people there. I mean, she wanted to be there and listening to everything and being involved and uh, just gave a great encouragement, which I understood on Sunday night to everybody. And so way to go. That's incredible. I know that is the reason for that is not just because you're geared up to go share the gospel, although that was very encouraging. And you got to let the tip of the spear of our family be missional with purpose. But I guarantee you what she saw was the joy, the sheer joy on people's faces in the family. It's so attractive and way to go with that. But here's a warning from Spurgeon also. Satan watches for vessels that sail without a convoy. And I think it's really easy while we're discouraged, or if you find yourself ever discouraged, is to pull away from community. I don't know why people do that, but I've seen way too many people, all of a sudden something happens in their life, something doesn't go the way they wanted it to go, uh, the, the, you know, that satanic mix of discouragement in your life. You're offended now. Someone says the wrong thing. Someone forgot to text you. Something happened here, there, bum, bum, bum. And then all of a sudden, where's that guy? Where'd she go? You know what I'm talking about? John Wesley said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. Nothing. It's not in there. You gotta keep persevering. If you haven't found that friend group, if you haven't found those close companions, keep persevering because it is God's will that you have them. You ha- you, he wants you to have, this is how he encourages the body. Also, a pastor said this, we are not called to live the Christian life apart from the protection of the church. The fellowship of a group of committed believers is vital to the spiritual health and to our endurance in the faith. The church is in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation is just as important for our survival as the ark was to Noah and his family. They simply would not have survived without it. And I believe that with all my heart. You know, doing church as a family or doing church as a mission are two very things that I don't think most of the Christian public actually want to do because both of them are hard. Like to actually give up your life and to go on mission, give up your work uh, vacation time to spend money and go and bring your families or go pregnant. Uh, I mean, it's, it's not necessarily easy, but it's worth it. And you might think, well, maybe the, maybe the missional thing is not for me. I like the family thing. Well, try that. Just try that alone. Say, so I, I just want my family. If you focus on your family, you don't get family. But if you focus on Jesus, you get both. You always do. In fact, you get empowerment for mission. Another pastor says this about uh, the warnings of shallow fellowship which really that's an oxymoron actually because fellowship actually means a spiritual depth 
to your relationship. There is a Christian failure to distinguish between socializing and fellowship. Although socializing is often both a part of and the context of fellowship, it is possible to socialize without having fellowship. Socializing involves the sharing of human and earthly life. The Christian fellowship, the New Testament koinonia, it's the Greek word, involves the sharing of the spiritual life. Don't misunderstand. Socializing is a valuable asset to the church and necessary for a balanced life. But we have gone beyond giving socializing the place it deserves. We have become willing to accept it as a substitute for fellowship, almost cheating ourselves of the Christian birthright of true fellowship altogether. Guys, when you go to an Antioch party, be intentional. That's the purpose of it. The purpose is not to have LaCroix and chicken. It, there's more of a purpose. <laughs> it's true though, isn't it? Even when you go to a wedding this summer, understand that the purpose is to witness a couple coming together for life in Christ, but also for the party to be intentional with each other. That could be just as simple as saying, hey, how's your walk with the Lord going? You know, those opportunities to get outside your life group, not to just, you know, be cliquish with them, right? It's to get outside them, to, find, to talk to people maybe you don't know, to get around different voices, In fact, you should want to talk to other people because they sharpen you to grow. And you sharpen them. Iron sharpening iron. Number two, God gives us a ministry success or fruit. Very, uh, we are very fruitful people. And that encourages us. When we come back and realize, wow, we planted a lot of gospel seeds or there's quite a few salvations. And that encourages us to reflect on the fruitfulness in this last season. The arrival of Silas and Timothy no doubt encouraged Paul. It says that when they came back, it gave Paul the focus. You see, he, was, he, he understood that I could, I could work and I can share the gospel at the same time. All of us, he, Paul proved that it is possible to be on mission in the workplace. But then he also realized I have a very unique call that when I could get supported, which there was no fault in that, he would defend himself and say, look, the worker is worth his pay. In other words, Paul said, hey, look, when my companions come back, I'm free to do Acts 6, which is the prayer and the ministry of the word. Early on when we planted the church, I mean, I knew that that was the ultimate calling, but I enjoyed being a substitute teacher and working uh, as a uh, sales guy for granite countertops. Can you imagine? And then also uh, working for Disney for a couple years. It was a joy. I wasn't like, oh man, I just want to preach. All this. I mean, it was a joy to build the church the way God wanted it to be built in his timing. And there was a value in working and doing ministry. It built a lot of character that could not be built in a classroom. I can't do that. <laughs> you know I don't like repeating myself. I just don't necessarily do that. But Matt, okay, so anyways, let me just go on here. But <laughs> that was Rebecca, by the way. But <laughs> she wanted me to say that because she wanted me to say that because she's the young adult leader with her husband, Mike. And Okay, you understand? Okay. Go back to making cannolis. But when they resisted and blasphemed, He shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own hands, I am clean. Now there was a lot of people asking questions on this mission trip. What do you do when you're constantly opposed? What do you do do when you feel like you should get out of a, a, a conversation? From now on, I will go to the Gentiles, he says. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, now you see him later in uh, Corinthians, he became a believer, believed in the Lord, and many Corinthians heard his testimony and got saved. 
One of the things I want to point out here, guys, is that there are times when you do need to leave that conversation. Sometimes we feel guilty about that. Well, what if, you know, God might turn that around? Now, God's God. He might turn anything around. And we always have that hope. But here's what the Bible says. Matthew 7, 6 says, Do not give what is holy to dogs. And do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. In fact, it's going to be bad for you. And it'll be bad for them because they won't be able to handle the truth. They cannot uh, uh, steward it well, right? I mean, it's, in other words, you're going to do them more harm. In fact, that's why Jesus spoke in parables. And so they shook off the, the, the dust of their garments. And basically what the Jews would do is anytime they had to go through a Gentile time, a, a, a city, they would, after they would get over the border, they would cross the border and they would just shake off the Gentile dust. They were racist, in other words, in, in, in today's terms. They just, they basically, they shook off all the dust and said, look, we're, we, we, we do not, we despise these people, even the dirt that they walk on. And so it was kind of a, the same way. I mean, they used that, Paul used that, and so did the disciples. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 9, 5, he says, as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, it wasn't necessarily like, oh, we hate these people. Now you gotta be careful. What he's saying is he used that cultural norm. He said, look, the, you're in judgment. You're in God's hands. We did our deed. We, we fulfilled our, our call and we, we shared. And Acts 13, 51, they modeled this, what Jesus said. They shook off the dust off their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Now, Paul was saying this. Now, here's, here's the balance. When you get into a conversation, I want to be clear. If you notice that they're hostile, or in this context here, they resisted them. It's okay for someone to continually ask more questions. In fact, it says they, uh, he devoted themselves, Paul devoted himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying Christ. But then he also says um, a little bit before that he reasoned in the synagogue. Do you remember from our time in D.C., what reasoning means? It's a Q&A. If people are asking questions, you stay. You stay. Is it, maybe you're like, I don't know the answers. I, don't, I feel like they're not really getting it. That's not up to you. Stay with them. There's a level of peace. If they're resisting you, if you can feel the resist, if they're like their arm is out or they're throwing rocks at you, that's an obvious. But if, if they're like, like this to you in the spirit or emotionally, they're like, they just keep saying, forget this. I'm not interested. And you keep going, you're throwing your pearls to swine. Did you, anybody get... Did anybody have that in D.C.? Or there was some of that happening. Certainly in Detroit that was happening, we know. But it's going to happen again. A friend of mine, uh, I, he came in from uh, North Africa, invited us uh, to, uh, I probably shouldn't say this, the name of the country, but it was the, the northern part of North Africa on the west, west side he invited our whole church to go. Uh, and I said, well, you understand, um, we just had lunch the other day. I said, we brought almost 200 people to D.C. And we, when, when the borders open, we plan on doing that. He said, oh, this would be a wonderful place for you to bring 200 people. Oh, really? <laughs> and he said, he said to me, <laughs> I'm actually really interested in going. I think it's going to be exciting. But the one, this, this play, he said, he's like, if you go, he's like, how long do you normally go on these trips? Well, I said anywhere from seven weeks, a week, 10 days to seven weeks. You know, we planted a church in Japan. We were there for that long. And he said, well, uh, I, I said, well, in this case, maybe we'll just bring our people for two weeks. He's like, perfect. That's just enough time for the police to, to know exactly what you're doing and for you to get out of there. That's a wonderful place. 
Wonderful place. But it is exciting, isn't it? Some of us are like, that's my kind of mission trip. Let's go. Some of us are like, no, thank you. (laughs) I'll never do that. Uh, The worst that could happen is they arrest you for one day and they send you back home. That's not that bad. And we already had, I I talked to some of our guys and we already had some guys that said they were willing to do that. Like Kevin, Kevin was one of them. And he said, I'll I'll take one for the team and I'll get persecuted and it's wonderful. I said, you would be the guy that they somehow keep for a long time. (laughs) He's like, you told me there's one day. I'm like, hey man, I'm sorry. I don't know what I, we'll pray for you. But Paul understood that he was not responsible for their decision. In Ezekiel 33, 2 and 5 says, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people and say to them, If I bring a sword upon the land, and the people of the land take one man from among them and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people, then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be on his own head. Understand that we are not responsible if we give the warnings. And we did. We were very successful in D.C. We did exactly what God's called us to do. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood will be on himself. But if he had taken the warning, he would have delivered his life. God is calling us now to share the gospel in these days and to do it freely. In fact, to sow sparingly. Just, and we're praying for fourth soil, but we are not responsible if that, if that seed falls on a thorny soil, is it? No, it's not our problem. Now we're called to disciple them and to follow up and to do all those things to tend to that garden. And we're doing that. We went into D.C. and we, we had our sister church there and we followed up. We had a lot of contacts to give, 42 or something like that, I think it was. And that's enough. I mean, can you imagine 42? Just do 42 times three. If they each 42, sure those 42 men or women invest in three more people, that's, that doubles their church overnight. It's not that hard. God loves multiplication. But it isn't our responsibility our responsibility simply is to share. And that, we leave the rest to God, right? It's freeing. All right, so, uh, okay, so number three. All right, here we go. Fellowship. Fellowship with the Lord. The, Paul received personal comfort. Now, I think this could relate to everybody here. I think this is probably one of the most comforting passages in Scripture when you know the context. Verse 9 and the Lord said to Paul in, the, in a night vision, he had six of these. Now everyone's like, oh, I want a vision. Well, then you'll have a life of Paul. And then maybe you'll have a vision. And maybe you're like, well, it's really not worth it. <laughs> Rather just read the Bible. <laughs> and the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. What do you think he was struggling with? What do you think was going through Paul's head in order for the Lord to give him that vision? I don't think I want to do this anymore. Just the thought of even going to the Middle East or thought of going to Asia or thought of having to go back on campus in the fall or whatever it might be, just the exhaustion of missions, to do it all over again, to continue to live missionally and continue to work on relationships and, and make sure that we're not giving in or compromising. It's like, how do we continue to be fruitful? That's exhausting. Is it even worth it, he's asking. And, and Jesus says, for I am with you and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. I have a lot more purpose for you. In other words, he has given him four things. You can write these down because he's speaking to us. Continue to speak truth. Even though it is extremely costly in this day. You can see the political world, they hate truth. This world hates truth, if you haven't realized it. Your teachers hate truth. Your bosses hate the truth. Your parents might even hate the truth. Your siblings 
may hate the truth. Your roommates might when it hits them in the right spot. Everybody loves the truth until it costs them something. And when it hits you. Number two, Jesus would personally be with him. He's with you. And I'll tell you, that is the most motivating. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what, when I don't feel like preaching or when I don't feel like doing discipleship, whatever, you know, even doing, a, doing anything, having to speak to somebody and doing church discipline, all those things that are costly. What gets me going, what, what, what stirs me is hearing that voice, it's that voice, you know, that, that voice. It's not an audible voice, but it's from the scriptures. The Holy Spirit illuminates that scripture when you need it the most. I'm with you. I'm with you. Joshua 1, 5 and 9 says, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jeremiah 1, 17 and 19. Now gird up your loins and rise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city, as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land to the kings of Judah, to its princes and to its priests and to the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you and will deliver you, declares the Lord. Number three is no one will attack you or harm you. Now listen, you might be thinking, well, what about those people that are martyred? Where do they go? In the presence of Jesus. Can the enemy ever touch them there? Never again. You can't lose as a believer. Isaiah 54, 17, which is a promise, no weapon formed against them shall prosper. And number four, there is a lot more people that Jesus has in this city that he wants to save and he wants to use you. Isn't that motivating? He wasn't in prison. He was just, and this just happened after there was fruit. How many know? I mean, a lot of times after the fruit's coming in, you're like, how did I get discouraged? I mean, it happened to Elijah. Elijah's like, I'm the only guy. Really? There's 7,000 others that do not bow to the name of Baal. They love the Lord. They're, you have a family, Elijah. You have companions. I'm with you. Isaiah 40, verse 41, verse 10, do not fear for I am with you. Do not, be, do not anxiously look about you for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Surely, 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 it's going to happen. He wants to comfort you. Matthew 28, 20, which is the great commission, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always and to the very end of age. He's with you until the mission is finally completed. What a wonderful thing. He's with you tomorrow morning as you get up and go to work and be like, I do not want to face these people. I'm tired. I don't want to talk to anybody. And then all of a sudden you say, okay, but not my will, but your will be done. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he speaks through you. And it's, how many know it's a lot better when he does than you? Even though God has provided wonderful friends, here again is another warning from Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 18. He, I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but he's listing off all these names Oh, say hello to this guy. Say hello. You, could, you, could, you could feel the rich family, the, like a father just talking to his kids. Just say, oh, I love this church. Talk to that guy. Oh, let me know what this guy's doing. And we have that in our, even in our movement here. It's wonderful that we have people all over the world. But he says this, at my first defense, but it, it's not always perfect. It's not always, it doesn't always go well when you are dealing with family and a relational ministry. At my first defense, no one supported me. 
but all deserted me and may it not be counted against them. Just like Jesus said, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me, the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. And to, be, to him be the glory forever and ever. That was literally like his last words written. They knocked on his cell, handcuffed him, brought him, and chopped his head off. But he, was, he knew that he was going directly to the presence of God. And sometimes that's our only hope. Guys, you will have days like that where you're like, if I die, I die, I'm going to be with Jesus. C.S. Lewis says this, and please remember this because it is so important to understand Jesus over family. We cannot find comfort with each other. There are certain times where for whatever reason, God will not allow the church to comfort you but only himself. C.S. Lewis says this, we do not come to church to be a church. We come to Christ and we are built up as a church. If we come to church just to be with one another, one another is all we'll get and it isn't enough. Inevitably, our hearts will grow empty and then angry. And if we put commonly community first, we will destroy community. But if we come to Christ first and submit ourselves to him and draw life from him, community gets traction. Brilliant. That's exactly what Jesus said. George Mueller, who was a minister of of an orphanage in England, said this, the primary business I must attend to every day is to the fellowship with the Lord. The first concern is not how much I might serve the Lord, but how my inner man might be nourished. I may share the truth with the unconverted. I may try to encourage believers. I may relieve the distress, or I may, in other ways, seek to behave as a child of God, yet not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day may result in this work being done in the wrong spirit. We've got to find what we need in him first. And then we're able to walk into church and in community. And I'm saying this is the norm. There are times God gives us the grace where we come in and yeah, we might've find it in him. And, and someone comes and gives us that right comforting word from the scriptures or, or just a pat on the back or a hug or something like that that encourages us. But I know there are times when I've walked in, I'm like, oh, will somebody just notice me? Will somebody just notice me, me? And they, nobody does. And it leaves me with the opportunity for me to destroy community and dest- community destroy me. Instead, when I come into the presence of God saying, you're my only hope, you have got to fill me, and I come in, I might still receive something from community. But it's the cherry on top. It's how it works. And so Paul, realizing that in verse 11, and he settled there for a year and six months because he found it to be a very peaceful place teaching the word of God among them. And and Corinthians was a successful church. They were a very gifted church. I mean, they had problems just like us. All right, let's pick up in verse 12. Number number four is that he fends for us. Sorry, in other words, it protects us. Fend is an appropriate word. Just maybe not fended. I mean, it's a word. You know what I mean. Okay. But while I, <laughs> these little things, they help you remember, trust me. He fends for us. But while uh, Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, which is just in the, uh, the peninsula of Corinth, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. They were trying, and the mob, like they do today, they always try to stir up things when they don't get what they want. 
But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrong or vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are, there are questions about words and names and your own law, look after it yourselves. I am unwilling to judge of these matters. In other words, he could care less. And they're trying to take advantage of a rookie. He is the brother of Seneca, which a lot of you guys may know. He's a Roman philosopher, and he was the tutor of Nero, which eventually killed Paul. But he was a, an intelligent, uh, and uh, he's very uninterested in flattery, which leaders, good leaders, should have. He was, uncon- uh, he, he was uncontrolled. He was not controlled, in other words, by the mob, as you see so much today in today's world, leaders being manipulated by the voices of culture. He didn't, he didn't really care, but this is very important to understand. A lot of people say, well, should we pray for religious freedom? We don't necessarily need religious freedom in order for the church to survive. Um, but it does make things comfortable, um, maybe sometimes too comfortable. Sometimes the, the boat's got to be rocked a bit in order for the church to come alive, and it did this year. How many would say? We still have our religious freedom. I don't know how long it'll last, but we still have it, thankfully, because it does help. Now, if Galileo did uh, decide to go with the mob, it would have been disastrous for Corinth and all of Greece. He would have basically just said, look, um, I'm siding with the mob and the Jews, and, and if right then and there, uh, Rome did not necessarily like new religions, but they approved of Judaism. And they said, that's an okay religion until a little bit later, about a few decades later, then it was like, hey, we're, mass persecution happened for many years uh, because it was uh, no longer legal. But for the time, it was, and it allowed Corinth and some of these churches by the providence of God to flourish. And I believe it's the same today. God's hand is on this country, but it may not be long before his hand departs. And the reality is that, look, we need to pray for our country. We need to pray specifically for Israel. Of course, some of you guys probably know the conflict that's happening there under the new administration. We need to care for the Jews. That is so important that Paul was never like, ah, oh, forget these Jews. In fact, it says in Romans 9, he would be willing to be cursed. He'd be willing to go to hell for their sake. That's a love. And sometimes I, I think the reason, the whole reason why God's hands on America is because we've been so good to Israel. But as soon as, which is happening now, as soon as we, the, the hand begins to sort of slip off Israel, and we begin to not really care as they're being bombarded by Lebanon and being bombarded by Gaza. They're just being annihilated. Now, I'm not worried about Israel. They've always been able to take care of themselves, haven't they? God's with that little tiny little country the size of New Jersey, and he has always been faithful to them. But we need to care for them. And we need to pray for our country that we would continue to have some sort of exercise of freedom of religion, which would be great. But if that were to never happen, we're going to be good. Because Matthew 16 says, not even the gates of hell would be able to prevail against his church. It's impossible to defeat the church. You just can't do it. Guns won't do it. Swords won't do it. Manipulation won't do it. Prison time won't do it. Social suicide won't do it. You being excommunicated from the precious Facebook won't do it. It doesn't matter. You, you cannot, you, you will never stop his church. And that is awesome. That's an amen. You are unstoppable if you're in Christ. So what happened? They were, the Jews were infuriated. So they grabbed Sosthenes, poor guy, took a nice little beating before the judgment seat. What happened there was that they realized Sosthenes couldn't actually carry the day and 
wouldn't perform for them, and so they went after him. The world can be pretty cruel, can it? When it doesn't, doesn't get what it wants, it becomes pretty cruel. It becomes pretty unjust to do whatever it takes to get what it wants. But either way, I just want to encourage you guys that Paul gained friends through this whole chaos. The church got off the ground. They're incredibly fruitful. Paul grew closer to the Lord. He understood the comfort of God in the midst of discouragement. And God protected them, and the mission continued. Isn't that good? That's how we're going to land right there. I just want to share with you one more verse because I think it's fitting. Isaiah, so many people gave me this this week and I think each other. But Isaiah 40, verse 29 to 31 says this, he gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and the vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. And they will mount up with wings like eagles and they will run and not get tired and they will walk and not become weary. That is a promise for every person in this room that is a believer in Christ. Isn't that amazing? He's so good. And I love what George Mueller said regarding provision. During the last three years and three months, I've never asked anyone for anything. The Lord has graciously supplied all my needs as I bring them to him. And at the close of each of these four years, although my income has been comparatively great, I had only a few shillings left. My needs are met each day by the help of God. He gives us everything we need. He's been so faithful for the last eight and a half years, and he will until the day he comes back for us or the day we die. But... God is faithful. Isn't he? Isn't the word good? All right. Let's stand to our feet and worship. Father, we thank you for all that you've given us in your word.